Hello everybody and welcome to episode 2, part 2 of the Derby Uni Footy Journos podcast where we will continue to give you our roundup of match day 1 with group C and group D of the tournament. Okay, let's start chatting about group C, shall we? We went to uh, the Netherlands Sweden the other day. It was a grand old experience in uh, Sheffield. Nice to be back in Sheffield. I was there before the tournament started and it was, yeah, there was a lot of uh, excitement about the actual uh, games that they were going to host. And of course they had a fan walk mm. and the atmosphere was great. How was it for you, Ollie? Yeah, I loved it. Um, probably my best experience so far, really, because yeah. the game was good. Um, nice stadium, actually. Bramwell Lane. It was Sheffield United Bramwell Lane. Better than I expected. Um, first time in Sheffield. Lovely day. And the fan park, the, the whole parade down from the fan park to Bramwell Lane was, was great fun. Only downside being that I'm vegetarian and I had a, I had a, I had a chicken. <laughs> yeah. I was served a chicken downside. wrap. And it was not good. Yeah. I'll have a veggie one, please, and then, oh, halfway through. I realised too late. He's that a chicken. Well, I'm not veggie, and the chicken was very nice. (laughs) (laughs) It was nice, it was just not what I wanted. (laughs) It wasn't ideal. Anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah, the game, the game, the game. Actually, not first before the game, Meg, let's talk about the fan park, the, the walk down a bit. We were right amongst it, weren't we? Right amongst the Netherlands fans. Yeah, we... Sea of Orange. We got properly stuck in, and, you know, we... We're jumping around, you know, jumping to the left, jumping to the right with these different songs and jumping up and down. And we were chatting to a few fans and they were sort of telling us what to do. And, you know, we just really got stuck in and involved. And it it was a great spectacle, something I'd never really experienced before. It's great, a carnival atmosphere. It really was, wasn't it? It was grand, yeah. And the weather really, really helped that. It was was just glorious, wasn't it? Walk through the sun with a load of... Bright orange and yellow kits reflecting the light back. Just it was crazy. so vibrant, wasn't it? And that parade was fantastic. There were thousands of thousands of fans all wearing orange, following the sort of big bus that was playing music out, and they had a sort of marching band in the middle. It went on for quite a long way, and we were right in the thick of it. Um, like Meg said, spoke to a few fans. Everyone's so friendly. Again, like we said at the start of the show, um, with the England opening game, it's a similar thing here. It's just such a nice atmosphere. Everyone there for the right reasons, enjoying themselves. Yeah, we did. We got. I think. I think we. I think we did well to get involved. Uh, yeah, respect their culture so many, and try and so do our many best. References to Dutch culture that we wouldn't understand. <laughs> we did so our best. Songs that were like everyone's going. Oh my god, this one. <laughs> luckily, of course. Luckily, there are a few crossovers in terms of the tune of tunes we're familiar with in England. In England, like "Free from football. Desire." I think we heard in "Free from Desire." <laughs> Go West. There was a few sort of. Few sort of tunes we Don't used. Dutch rehashings of like didn't. old Langsdijk was heard yeah. in Dutch as well. Old Langsdijk, yeah, it didn't. It didn't take long to get accustomed to it, and it was it was great fun. And then we got to Bramall Lane, and the game itself won all between Netherlands and Sweden. Again, two teams. I mean, a really, really, really great fixture to start off Group C. Two teams that could easily go all the way to the final. Meg, what do you think? What, what do you make of the actual game itself? Yeah, I think going into it, I think all three of us expected quite a high goal-scoring game. and Maybe it wasn't as high goal-scoring as we liked it to be, but a, a great performance from both sides. I think Sweden especially looked really compact and really you know, threatening going forward. I think mm. it took a while for the Netherlands to sort of get into the game. I think in the second half they opened themselves up a bit more, especially with Spitzer and Jill Rod sort of in those wide midfield positions. But yeah, what did you make of Sweden, Alfie? I thought Sweden looked pretty dangerous, I'd say. Their wing-backs worked very well. 
against the Netherlands. <laughs> I agree. Effect. I think they're wingers as well. Mm. I think in general, they look quite alive, which is something that the Netherlands at times didn't look. I think what it, what, what it was, from my perspective, that Sweden looked better drilled than the Netherlands did. They sort of yeah. knew, everyone knew, everyone knew where they had to be. I think they're playing a 3-4-3, right? And they sort yes, of right. maybe slightly caught Netherlands off guard a bit and just weren't really aware. It was so well drilled. Yeah, Jona Andersson spoke after the game she scored Sweden's goal and she said to the media that the Netherlands weren't expecting them to play those wing-backs, so that's what shocked the Netherlands mm. and obviously that worked and that'll maybe work facing their other opponents in the group stage. Well, uh, I think now it's out there, it's out there that that's what they can do, but... But stopping it, it is another, is another it issue. It definitely works. Um, the Netherlands, obviously, a side that can play quite intricate football and did... At times there was, oh yeah, that's what they can do. You, you saw examples of the quality that they obviously have, but I don't, I don't know, it didn't feel like it was all all there as far as like you say being drilled into their positions for example at times you thought all these players individually are very good but maybe they're not quite as the chemistry between them didn't feel as active as it could have done I mean in the second half they changed things up a bit Miedema moved out wide got in a few more positions defensively that helped them greatly and she did really well there but I think well, from an attacking standpoint, they didn't look as dangerous as we thought they could have. Yeah, do you think it's clicked yet under Mark Parsons, Ollie? Obviously, they, they've won this tournament on home soil with Serena Wiegmann, who's now with the Lionesses. Do you think it's yet to click under Mark Parsons? I think I do. Obviously, former manager Serena Wiegmann, who's now the uh, England manager, um, she was so successful with that national team. Uh, Euros, 2017 Women's Euros champions... And then it got to the final of the 2019 Women's World Cup, just falling short. So she had a hugely successful stint there. So Parsons is always going to come in, um, you know, with the the pressure on him and, and with with the bar set so high. Uh, I spoke to um, Victoria Palova, who came on in the game, came on the second half for, for the Netherlands, who's a sort of very technical, intelligent midfielder. And um, I asked her about how she found Mark Parsons. It was the English as well, which is another sort of factor in all of this, I think. Um, and she said, uh, she said in, in the beginning, it was, it was difficult. I had Serena for four years and then someone else came in. But it's really good now. First, for me, the language is a barrier, but now I'm used to it. So I, 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 I do still feel that there is still, they're still adapting to, the, to, to his, um, the way he plays. Also went to the mix zone last week and he led the training session in English. So maybe it isn't. A, I'm not convinced the connection is there as it was under Wiegmann. and I think it's still clicking into place. But I do agree. Second half, Netherlands looked a lot stronger and looked more a lot more organised than they did in the first. And obviously, player of the match was awarded to Vivian Meadmer of Arsenal, who obviously played much better in the second half, provided the assist for Jill Rhodes' goal. Alfie, do you believe she deserved that play of the award, play of the match award? I know there was a Sweden player <laughs> that, that you particularly thought played very well. Yeah, um, I think maybe uh, in hindsight the role she played was crucial, Viv, but I'm not sure it was one that brought brings up her numbers. I think if you look at 
every stat. It wouldn't show you, well, she was all over this match. I think tactically she played a very interesting role in the second half that allowed the threat of the wing-backs to be diminished slightly, but still, no, I think uh, Friedelina Rolfo for Sweden was significantly better, especially with a draw, you know, you can give the player of the match to either team, and I think she looked dangerous for nigh on 90 minutes, really. Mm. Every time she got the ball, you thought, well, something's going to happen here, whereas uh, Viv wasn't quite at the races for the whole match, and then in the second half, because she suddenly was, it was like, wow, that's made a big difference. And yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, uh, she was sort of used... Um, Minimal was sort of used as a sort of wide target man, target, target woman, I suppose, uh, which is an interesting role and did, I think did work eventually in the end, but like you say, over the course of the 90 minutes, I think Friedelina Rolfa, uh, Sweden number 18, was so consistent, so strong, and she played a really key role. She was given sort of quite a sort of free roaming role throughout the game, and she moved from a sort of central role out onto the left, sort of switching, which saw the system switching a three-five-two and a three-four-three, but it was very fluid, and she wasn't she wasn't integral to all of that. Yeah, her ability when it came into her feet was pretty so tidy on the ball, was she? Yeah, exactly. There's you know close control, and she'd be surrounded by defenders, uh, but she'd be able to get through them. Whereas I think uh, for much of the first half, for example, when Miedema was playing up front central. She'd get the ball into her feet and then couldn't do that much with it. And it mm. was sort of like the only way they'd be able to get through was if a moment of magic happened, as opposed to a, any sort of tactical thing where they'd opened them up enough to get through. And so they were sort of trying to pass through a brick wall for 45 minutes, whereas Rolfa just looked so alive that the threat was there all, all game, really. It was a really interesting contest, tactically, and second half especially was really expansive so it was, it was, it was a really thrilling fixture and um, a great start to, to Group C and uh, we also saw Louis van Howe the men's team manager there which is the first example of, of this we'll get uh, well, into that later it's, yeah um, it looks like something that will happen more often well, because hopefully. this tournament is an example of uh, the women's game going big and hopefully men's or the men's manager's roles that is saying, look at this, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was thoroughly enjoyable, wasn't it? Also, a note on the Sweden fans, obviously, we enjoyed the spectacle of the fan march with the Dutch, but during the game, it was it was the Swedish fans that actually made more noise. Yeah, what did were, you make of that? They were so vocal threat, weren't they? Um, yeah, said the word the Sweden ch- over and over again. The, the chant was quite festive, but, but in fairness, <laughs> they, they was loud and proud um, throughout, yeah, relentless. But yeah. a great... Gramosphere. Um I think that broke the record, which we had already broken, of the largest crowd of, from without excluding the other home nation. So yeah, fantastic to be there for that one. And we also found it strange that when we after we'd gone into the turnstiles at Bramall Lane, we actually had to walk up lots of stairs, almost like we were walking up to a, a castle, almost. It to was get weird, into wasn't it? Ground. Strange ground. I, strange. I loved it. I loved it. it was a fantastic experience. And then. Um, uh, that, and then that same day, we saw Portugal, Switzerland, uh, a two-wheel draw at least Sports Village. Juliet, can you tell us about that game, please? Portugal, Switzerland, how was it to watch? It was good. It was fun. I was in Wigan and Lee. Is it Wigan? Is it Lee? Is it Lee? I don't know. 
Um, it's a fundamental question that has to be answered. <laughs> it was an interesting stadium, first of all, to watch at because it's one of the smallest. It's completely out of the way. But and obviously it was kind of like a matinee for the bigger game later on, Switzerland, Netherlands. Um, which makes this kind of uh, really disappointing for both teams because to have any chance of qualifying, they needed a win. Um, and I think at times they were both good enough to win. In the first half, um, Switzerland were, they came out so strongly. They scored twice in the first uh, five minutes and they looked so on it. Like they were winning, they were so physical. And Portugal, they had less preparation, obviously coming from being uh, in for Russia, but they just looked completely shocked by the way Switzerland came out. Um, Sal's first goal was really, really good. Um, and second one was another header. Um, and I, th I did think to start with it was going to be a bit of a route and a bit embarrassing. But it kind of tailed off in the first half and then the second half was the exact opposite. I thought uh, Portugal were really good. They were really fun to watch, they were like, zipping the ball about everywhere. Um, Jessica Silva was really fun to watch. She kind of got shut out in the, in the first half. I got really frustrated at one point with the fourth officials because she thought she was being fouled a lot. She'd been tugged, um, being stopped every time, but she kind of got a bit more free in the second half. Um, yeah, they just piled on the pressure. That first like 20 minutes of the, the second half, it was all in, in Switzerland's box, really. And the first goal was a bit of a scramble, um, but it was completely deserved. And then the last 10 minutes were very frantic. It had a bar, lots of good saves. Um, and yeah, it was a really entertaining game, which is quite a shame because I think in, in it, they weren't stuck, like shoved in a, a group with two of the favourites. I think they could be really exciting teams to to watch, fortunately. So, in your mind, that's it then for these two? I think so. I think they probably know that as well. Um, I think Switzerland, if they played like they did in the first half, could, could they could be annoying for... Um, Netherlands and, and Sweden but they were so it was like chalk and cheese the, the first half and the second half for, for both teams and I, I don't see them posing that much of an issue So if one of them was to pose a particular issue is the one that you would say yeah they have enough or are they both equally about as able? Um, I think very different. I think attacking-wise, Portugal, when they were were on it, I think could pose an issue. Um, but they conceded a lot of chances, even when they were uh, had the better second half. So I'd like to think that uh, it could be more entertaining. But I think they both came into this game knowing that it was very much a must-win to uh, to get through. Ooh, how disappointing. I mean, it was a really entertaining game, though. I know, I really yeah, enjoyed but it. then afterwards you go, that was great, but that's it. That's sort of yeah. where the tournament ends, basically. You never know. Maybe this will haunt me. Yeah, day. that'll be fun. Maybe We've got it on tape. Sweden will crash out now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they knew it was a must-win, and I and think they you kind of win. tell at the end of the game. It was a bit of a... It's a shame. So, tactically, what was the... What was the game like? Was the... Well, I don't know... Because Netherlands-Sweden, it was very much a game of, like, wing-backs. It was very open because both the teams were so good. Whereas this seems quite weirdly frantic. It was a bit... There was a bit of a mess in midfield, I think, because they... 
Uh, Portugal's midfielder is a lot more technical, I'd say. You've got like Dolores Silva, uh, Pinto as well. Um, whereas the Swiss are a lot more physical, which it caused massive problems for Portugal in the first half. Um, but Portugal's midfielders pushed so much higher immediately from from the start of the second half, and it just pegged Switzerland back. Um, and that gave more chance for the, the wide players, Jessica Silva, as I say. Their front three was so fluid all of a sudden. Um, but yeah, it was, it was more open, I think, um, than probably Netherlands, Sweden. So. Hmm. Wow, it's quite open as it was, to be fair. <laughs> so, how was Wigan and or Lee? Uh, mostly first, Lee. Mostly Lee. Yeah. The, the branding is all Wigan and Lee, which confused me. Because it isn't. <laughs> it's not Wigan. Like, it's just a lie, <laughs> which is a bit weird. Um, yeah, it was my first time going there. It's been one of the stadiums that's been slated a lot for. Yeah. It's choice. So over the past couple of days, we've been to both the ones that have been slated as a choice. So the Academy course, Stadium yeah. in Manchester, that was quite interesting because half the seating was like covered over at both ends. Yeah. So was that the same? That was the same. There was a whole stand of um, like safe standing at, at Lee as well. Um, the attendance was meant to be more. I think that's a, quite a reoccurring theme. Yes. But I went to the, the media one, someone asked. Uh, like the start of the game, what's the attendance meant to be like? And they said about 8,000. I think it turned out to be like 5,500. Mm. Um, but the atmosphere was actually really good. There was a lot of support for, for both. I was kind of sat by near the Switzerland fans who were very fun. It seemed to, I think the weather's helping a lot. Yeah. It, it was mean, like, again, a positive atmosphere, uh, but it's a shame it's not. Um, not sell out as if it should be. Yeah, I think this is what I said earlier is that. Although Bramall Lane wasn't full, yeah. it was still the same percentage. So the capacity is whatever. In the UK, 20, 30, 40% of that is where people are. Mm. And then there's you know 60% that isn't full. But that's still like 15,000 when you're in Bramall Lane. Yeah. Yet when you're in like this little academy stadium, mm. the percentage is still you know, 40% of the capacity, but that's only 3,000. So yeah. surely hosting a bigger stadium where more people can watch, I find that quite you, you'd odd. You'd think so. I mean, the stadium, it was, it was nice, it's all right. Um, but weird little village around it, you've got a pub and then a massive Morrison's <laughs> sort of um, which makes a kind of a build-up atmosphere a bit odd. They had a nice, mm. like, steel band out, which I quite oh, enjoyed. Oh, hello. Um, went down well, I think. Um... But yeah, I think, I think I do think it's a shame that these two teams have kind of been shoved in a group because the support was really good, football was good, and maybe should have been at a bigger stadium, unfortunately. Yeah, sounds like a pretty good game, though. I did, I enjoyed myself. Yeah, good job. <laughs> Thank you. So you should. So, finally we move on to Group D, and the first game in Group D saw Belgium take on Iceland at the Manchester City Academy Stadium in a one-all draw. Ollie, do you want to tell us a bit about how that game panned out? Yeah, so, um, not long ago we spoke about the uh, Sweden-Netherlands game, I think this was actually quite similar in many ways, another one-all draw. Another, another game where it was so closely fought, there wasn't much separating the sides in my opinion. Um, it was, it was again, it was very expansive, quite tactical. Um, yeah, it was a great one. I was in the press box for this game and the sun, although in Manchester, 
was so hot. It was like, oh, was, I was frantically yeah, typing away. It was directly away, on my head. Trying to work to the height of the time pressure deadlines, which is a fantastic experience, by the way. Really, really good experience. But it was, it was sweltering, was the word, isn't it, Yeah, the word that I must have tweeted on your Instagram about 10 times. A bit sweltering here. Yeah, heat was right on it, which, as you say, doesn't feel right for Manchester, but look, they did a good job of it. I think, like you say, the game was... Gripping. Uh, equally as bright in its uh, outlook, I would suggest. Um, two teams that were well-matched, I yeah. would say, that sort of went into the game both equally in a position where I, in my mind, couldn't say, oh, yeah, they're going to smash this tournament. Mm. Uh, sort of an unknown quantity for me as to how well they would do. Yeah, Iceland are ranked 17th and Belgium ranked 19th. And actually, my intro to my match report, I said that it would be near impossible to answer the question of who's, who are the favourite guy heading into the game, and that, that panned out to be the case. Um, and the game was a lot of controversy. There was sort of four of penalty incidents. Four-ish penalty Four-ish penalty incidents. So the fir- in the first half, the Swedish referee, not, not that's relevant really, or another Nordic situation, <laughs> well, potentially with yeah. the Iceland thing, but the Swedish referee awarded Iceland the penalty. Kenneth is going to be winging you know, <laughs> up and going, what about this? Uh, the penalty is awarded to Iceland um, for a handball on the Belgium uh, fullback. And, pro- and they went to VAR. Um, and it, well, the delay wasn't too long, I didn't find it to be an issue at all. And it, you saw the replay on the screen, it was all good in that sense. But the penalty was less good. The penalty was taken by their number nine um, and so bad, it's like so feeble, really under hit. I mean, in fairness, the keeper guessed the right way, but. Yeah, but it was solidly one of the worst penalties I've It was seen horrendous, quite some wasn't time. it? It, that, it was a penalty that said, I did not want to take this penalty. <laughs> it was a bit, yeah. I mean, in a way. Uh, as the game panned out, you would expect a player who'd done something so woefully to not appear again. But luckily, she did, and she scored in the end, yeah. which was, I suppose, nice. But it was, yeah, but solidly <laughs> one of the worst penalties I've seen. Yeah, like, like I say, she she did amend for them for the um, she did she did amend for the miss uh, five minutes into the second half. She she headed into the back at the back post. Um, it was a really nice bit of play, actually, uh, from... <laughs> Too long ago, what is her name? Oh, yeah. so it was a really nice bit of play <laughs> from Carolina Vuljamsdottir, who was Iceland's number eight. And, and Vuljamsdottir looked really good all game, actually. She really impressed me all game. A good candidate for play of the match. Not, not, mm. not that she was a good bit, but... So, so she took the corner, sort of played short, and then came back out to her. And then she sort of cut in on her favoured right foot and did a really nice sort of deep in-swinging ball to the back post, which lifted the back post. And that's where um, uh, Thor's Valstottir, who, who missed the penalty, headed in for the back post um, to amend for her miss. And, and I think give maybe a deserved lead. I think Iceland might have slightly edged it, but like it says, very even. And then came the second penalty incident, where the um, so it's basically so so the number thirteen for Belgium called uh, Elena Dont she she sort of did a little nutmeg on the Icelandic player 
and was then blocked off and went down and was rightly awarded the foul. And I from the press box, I thought it was just I thought it was just outside the area. And there was a bit of confusion, a bit of uncertainty for a few minutes of where it, where it took place. And then it became apparent that um, uh, Van, Van Hoedemart got the, got the ball, walked to the penalty spot, and she converted. She, she did what, what Thor's Valstock here couldn't do. So Van Hoedemart made it one all from the spot. And then came two more penalty incidents right towards the end of the game, the dying minutes. So I was, I was about to send off my copy. I was about to file. And I was happy with what I wrote as well. And then in the last sort of few minutes, Iceland had a quite a strong lane of penalty when when a, a effort on goal was blocked and it looked like it hit the arm again in the box, but the referee sort of waved away the the, the claims and the Icelandic supporters, um, who by the way are a fine voice and did do their rendition of the yeah, Icelandic claim. Fine clap clapping. Twice. I did it, they did it at full time and they did it sort of half an hour into the game and I was quite pleased. Oh, I, got, I, got great. A, I, I did film it. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. I spoke to a an Icelandic fan, actually alumni of this course, Gummy, um, he was really, really nice, really generous with his time, and he, he said he found the Icelandic clap a bit sort of cliche and cringy now, but I, you know... If they didn't it was, do it, you'd my, be disappointed. Exactly, yeah, that was my first experience of it, and it was great. So the Icelandic fans were in, were in full voice, and they were really shouting for this late penalty call, but the referee w- waved it away, and then Belgium countered. A ball was put in behind, um, so I think the Belgium the number 11, and who had a sort of showed a really explosive pace and she knocked it beyond the Icelandic goalkeeper who was 35 years of age she was a really experienced keeper and actually had a good game and but she, she her outstretching glove brought down the forwards and it's blatant penalty couldn't be clearer and sure enough referee pointed but then the linesman the linesman raised, it, raised her flag side. and it was offside so you know it had sort of two incidents <laughs> actually in the end it finished one all but a really, really exciting and From a journalistic encounter. point of view, there was a lot of panic at the end that your coffee wasn't going to be relevant anymore. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Well, I suppose it still would have been a draw if both were awarded. But, um, that is true. But it was a great game. It was a great game. And again, like you said earlier with, with Van Howe, um, Roberto Martinez was there, wasn't he? Yes, he walked in, in past attendance. me. And I was like, oh, hello. I don't, wasn't expecting that. The stadium is so... Well, not annoyingly small for a tournament, I'd say. Uh, but it was good. It was it was great. At it was I think it's an eight thousand capacity stadium, and I think and there were three thousand eight hundred odd or something like that exactly, was the attendance. Yeah. But because it's so small, I was sat on the front row, and he just walked past me, which is a <laughs> bit weird. It's like everyone everyone who was there had to basically walk past me as they were walking by, and I was like, oh, who's that very important looking man in a suit? And there he is going to the game. And I think afterwards the. Uh, the Belgian manager basically said that he he's like a sort of director of football for, yes, yeah, for Belgium did, yeah. and so therefore has a sort of vested interest in how they do. And so it's good to see that uh, that you're considering the women's game in a in a more yeah, overall way with how you plan Make what you make of that? The, the men's football. the men's managers going to support the women's games. What you want to see, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I, I mean, I had no idea Roberto Martinez was at that game. That's that's absolutely incredible. And obviously, with Louis Van Gaal, you just hope it continues. Yeah. And one very noteworthy thing that happened at the game, which arguably overshadowed anything on the pitch, was a, a Paddy Power uh, publicity stunt, which we, of course, they're known for. This one um, was in response to the complaints um, that. Journalists and fans have, have mm. made over the sort of capped capacities we see in the stadium. So they've got some great grounds this this summer. They've got Old Trafford, obviously Bramwell Lane. Um, this one was a lot smaller, the academy grounds. 
Yeah, and it's garnered a lot of complaints, a lot of questions from both journalists but, and fans to the people who organised it as to whether it's a good choice for that capacity. Yeah, but at, at these big stadiums, they're sort of they're only uh, putting tickets out for certain stands or either the lower half of some stands. So you'll see a whole stand that only seats them with a you know with a banner over it. But they're saying they're calling it sold out, but technically, but there's, there's, technically there's more there's seats, seats there. Empty. And so Paddy Power did this. In response to this, they did this publicity stunt at the Manchester Academy Stadium, which on the horizon, just in the background, literally around the corner, you see the Etihad, which is, of course is, you know, seven, eight times larger than where we were. And they had a sort of balloon, a sort of arrow, blow up inflated arrow pointing towards Etihad, saying, which, which read, anyone seen a stadium big enough for a Euros game? And uh, commenting on this, on the complaints that there should be there should be the same attendance, the same at least available um, seats for these big stadiums as, as, as there are on the, in the men's game. Meg, I was just thinking about you, it's the first time you've seen this, I'm assuming you're going off your face. What do you make of this and, and the whole situation in general of, of, of cap capacities at these big grounds and, and also using, in this case, a smaller ground when, when one larger is available? Yeah, well, well, I think it's bizarre, really. I think, obviously, when we went to Bramall Lane, there was a whole you know, section that wasn't used. And I know so many people who have been dying to get tickets and it's like, well, I haven't been able to because it said they've sold out online. But then we hear from someone that UEFA are selling the tickets up until half time, which, you know, has not been announced publicly, which is bizarre. And I just think you can get more people into the games and more people can come and watch, but that doesn't seem to be the... Their reasoning for going with lower capacity grounds was that you would be able like now if they were planning this tournament now they know the popularity is there and they would have the buy-in from the clubs apparently mm-hmm. this is what the tournament lead Chris Bryant said but at the time they didn't get the buy-in from some clubs therefore went to a lower capacity which well these games now now we are here now even when we're in this smaller stadium, it seems to me that they're weirdly not wanting to sell them out. Because, like you said, I know plenty of people, me included, like for this game, I couldn't buy a ticket by UEFA. I knew someone who wasn't able to use theirs and took that instead. Not able to buy them, it says they're sold out, but there are seats available that they've just covered over with tarpaulin to claim that it's sold out. Even at a small ground like this one? Yeah, even at a small ground like this one. But the economy of scale, of putting it in a massive ground, because it's a tournament, people want to turn up. Like, there's a reason why at Bramall Lane the attendance was as high as it was compared to the size of the ground, and that the attendance in the Manchester Academy was still, it was equal to this amount of the ground, the percentage of people yeah, who went yeah, yeah. in there. Whereas, you know, so when you put it in a small ground, a smaller amount of people are going to come. If you put it in a big one, more people will come, surely. I find that a bizarre decision. My only thought was that they're going to try, that the aim, the thinking behind it is that is a bid to increase and improve the atmosphere at the games and having all the fans near each other. Maybe that's why they're blocking off certain stands. But it is a, it is a real strange one, and I've seen lots of people online on Twitter complaining about about, about these ca- about these capped capacities. Mm, and I don't think it works like that. If mm. that if that is your reasoning as UEFA or whoever 
is going to defend that position is that, well, if we do it in a smaller space, then it sounds better. Well, Bramall Lane is, although it wouldn't maybe host a men's tournament, I'm not sure, it wouldn't possibly go past that criteria, but it's a bigger stadium than the Academy Stadium, and the atmosphere was great. So it was great. Cool. Put it in a big enough stadium. And um, and the atmosphere was great with this game as well, the Iceland-Belgium game, and a very enjoyable game. Uh, journalistically, a really great experience for me doing the sort of working to the time pressure of doing my runner, finally half time, 75 minutes, and then pretty much in full time. I just about met the, just about met the deadline, and then the press conference, which was fantastic. I even asked a few questions, which I was very proud of. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was brilliant. And then later that night, three hours later, the kickoff wasn't it? 8, 8 p.m. in in um, Rotherham. You were at what were you at? France, Italy. France, Italy, of course, the big one. How oh, was it? Honestly. I don't think I've ever seen a first half of football ever. It was absolutely manic. That makes sense. <laughs> like that. I've never seen a first half of football ever. Ever. <laughs> my first first half of football. As football journalists, I always we know, we, we know what you mean. We know what you mean. This is, this is, you're saying this is the most exciting first half you've ever been to. You reckon? I mean, of women's football, definitely, and mm. compared to a lot of men's games I've been to as well. Like it was just. A lot of people, you know, France are one of the favourites, but they're really slept on. You know, a lot of people talk about England, Spain, Sweden, Netherlands being favourites, but France are also favourites. And if they play like that throughout the whole tournament, no one's going to get yeah, past when, them. Really when think? we talked about them initially in the first podcast, the main thing was, well, I think George said he thought maybe they were being ignored by some people because their quality is clearly there, but they do have a few issues in the dressing room. Oh, so really? to get it right on that first game, really important. Mm. Yeah, and so... They did it in a way... It was so right. Yeah, you couldn't be more right than they were. Well, yeah, as you said, um, there's, it, there's it's quite a hostile environment in the changing room. Um, the squad have actually wanted to get rid of their manager, Kareem Diakra, for quite a while now. For, for what reasons, I'm not quite sure. I think... She tends to fall out with a few players, you know. She fell out with um, Amandine Henry of Lyon. Um, she didn't include her in the squad. She's a great striker, one of the Le main Sol strikers. as well, France. Eugene Lasol. Yeah. She's not gone. A lot of the experienced players haven't mm. gone, which is amazing because if you look at who scored, there's a lot of young names in that long, long list of players that scored and made an effect on the game. So, yeah, the the hat-trick goal scorer was Grace Guillaume. She actually got the hat-trick on her 50th cap for France, which, you know, quite a special night for her. And it was only in the first half. But when you get five goals in one half, you sit there at half-time and you think, are we going to get the same in the second half or is it going to be different? And it was certainly different. I think Italy were definitely the better side in the second half. I think France had really tied themselves out after that first half. So Italy were able to open them up, find those pockets of spaces. And obviously they did get that one goal through sub uh, Martina Piemonti, who came on. And within a couple of minutes, a bullet header, she just put it right into the back of the net. And, you know, the Italian fans were going crazy for it. And But obviously they were disheartened by the result. But, you know, there's positives to take from that second half. There were some really key players... Oh, are there positive take from the second half, though? Because they're playing against a France side in third gear, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, you know. I mean, I don't know. What, would you say that France were in third gear? Or are we saying in the second half, 
France tired themselves out completely, and so Italy were able to get a foothold. Like if or is it, is it is a case that of France's weakness or Italy's strength? I don't know. I'd say it's a bit of both. I wouldn't say France completely reeled themselves in in the second half, but you know you could tell. I mean, they still created quite a lot of chances and maybe could have scored one or two more, but I think they did slightly tire, and maybe Italy went in at the break and sort of talked about how they can break them down mm. more. And, you know, it obviously clearly worked. But I went into the um, the mixed zone after the game. All the Italians didn't didn't really want to speak to anyone, <laughs> which, you know, was fair enough after that result. But um, I spoke to Everton women's Kenza Dali, who came on as a second-half sub for France. And she was playing, playing against Gali, who also plays for Everton on the Italian side. And she said she spoke, they spoke after the game, obviously, Garley, you know, was disappointed, but she was speaking about watching the first half, sat on the bench and she said, she said she wasn't surprised by the outcome of the first half because she knows the quality that they've got in the squad. But she says, you know, they've set the bar really high for the rest of the tournament and that, you know, she just believed they can go on and win the tournament, which was, you know, a nice thing for a player to confidently mm. confidently come out and say. Well, I think an interesting thought uh, to be had on that start, because where does that put you? Because, like I said, with England, they needed to get it right, but if you overachieve, then at what point do you... You know, there's bound to be some kind of reality check. Well, I mean, unless they literally sail through the whole competition battering people, you know, 5 nil all the time, then there's a point where you don't want to get too carried away with yourselves. Yeah, do you think France might show any signs of, of, of complacency? I don't know, because I think, obviously, they've got Belgium and Iceland in the group as well, who are, you know, they're, they're good teams, but France are going to easily probably get a result from them. So, hope maybe with it being a lower-ranked team... That, you know they'll get the result and maybe not have to put as much into it as they did last mm. night but still I think with the quality that they've got that they're going to be unstoppable and that is the best performance from an individual team that I've seen so far in the tournament Tactically why what happened that, that saw France get five goals in, in one half and Italy get none? I think it was the fact that just every ball was played in the right position all, all the players knew their roles. There was there was one pass from centre-back, the captain, Wendy Renard, to... Where's her name? It's a very very strange name. Caddy uh, Diatu Diani, who was mm. my player of the match. So she, Wendy Renard played a looping ball right over the top to Diani, who was down at the right-hand side, and that led to one of the goals. It's just one of the most perfect textbook passes I've seen and it happened all the time throughout the first half. No one put a foot wrong and I so think very that's very direct in their passing and just finding all the pockets and even if they had to come back with the ball it would straight away go forward again and just all over the place and just unstoppable. What was Italy's answer to that then? Because I imagine if they were playing, say, England, England would try and keep the ball for a lot of it or, you know at least nullify the threat of direction by not being as sort of open. Yeah. Maybe more, closing more up a bit, keeping the ball, recycling well, so they didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. Did Italy I, have a good answer? I think Italy, they had a, you know, a few points in the first half where they had a bit of possession 
and they you know they progressed the ball forward towards the goal but then if they if they did have a shot on goal in the first half it wasn't on target I think the pressure from France really got to them in that first half but you know that's probably expected when you're playing against such a tight compact team that know what they're doing and know where to put the ball into every position and what, how, how did you find Rotherham's New York A-E-S-C-O New York Stadium how did you find it you know what when press box right yes well when I walked up to it I thought you know, I would look at that and think that could be a Premier League stadium from the outside for mm. sure. And, you know, when, when I walked in, I thought, you know, maybe a little less impressive when you go in. But in terms of the press box, that's the best view I've had from a press box mm. ever. So, yeah, really good. I found a spider on my desk, which I wasn't happy about. Though. <laughs> really not happy. <laughs> so you think, is there, is, there nothing, is there anything stopping France from going all the way then? I th- un- unless they get some major injuries or there's a fallout in the dressing room, which, you know, they're easily probably yeah, could be. It's a live wire situation. Yeah. Mm. Then I don't think there would be any anyone stopping or any team that could stop them. Brilliant. Wonderful stuff. Oh, okay, so that's, that's the end of uh, game week one or the first round of fixtures in the uh, group stage of the Women's Euros. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed our roundup and our pronunciation of some of the players' names. I mean, Icelandic players may need slightly a bit more work. Sorry to call you out there. No, it's, it's, it's valid, I'm valid feedback. I'm equally as useless as uh, at these things. Uh, but yeah, it's looking like it's shaping up to be a very exciting tournament with, I think the runners and riders have really made themselves known by now. Uh, and yeah, it'll, It'll be good to see where we can go from here in the next round. And yeah, we'll be back with another another round up pretty soon. See you all soon. <laughs>